On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. J.C. Beal about contradictory Christology. So we cover topics like what is contradictory Christology? What is logic? What versions of logic are there? Are there theological reasons to want to retain a classical version of logic? Are there potential objections to contradictory Christology? What are they? Has anyone in church history really affirmed a contradictory Christology or been potentially interested in it at least? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And as we think, we don't want to just think in the abstract, we want to think well. So one of the things that we hope to do with this podcast is create conversations with with other with other thinkers that are going to generate this type of intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, um, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Not everybody is into confessionalism that we interview, but we like to have a good dialogue in, in that area because I think uh, unfortunately, there's a stigma that goes all along with confessionalism, at least over the last, I don't know, I feel like three or four years where it's just shielding yourselves off from legitimate dialogue and conversations. So hopefully we're breaking the mold a little bit in that and say, hey, you can be kind to everybody and you can learn stuff from everybody. So in that vein, I, I'm really interested to talk to Dr. J.C. Beal about his new book, The Contradictory Christ. I would imagine Probably 25% of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Beale's work, familiar with the book, familiar with the book, and then 75% of them probably have no idea, have never heard about the book. Um, but I think when we talk about the topic, they're going to be very interested in it. So, Dr. Beale, before we jump into everything, why don't you give us just a little bit of background of who you are and what got you into this topic, uh, maybe particularly this book? Right. <clears throat> My name is J.C. Beale. I teach and work at the University of Notre Dame. What got me interested in this topic, and in particular this book, this is sort of two streams coming together finally. So I grew up, there was a lot of um, uh, theology, a lot of Calvin theology. And of course, anyone who has spent a little time looking at any of that kind of theology knows there's all sorts of philosophical questions that jump up immediately. And so I sort of had all that in the background and I wound up doing a lot of thinking on those subjects on my own. I had some talent in uh, logic uh, as well. And I wound up well, first I went to um, seminary, but it was kind of a different sort of an atypical degree. It was more sort of, I think my talents lied more in the academic realm uh, than in the um, pastoral um, realm. But I did that and then wound up going into philosophy and wound up spending about most of my career so far working very hard on trying to understand um, logic and the right philosophy of logic and its relation to other um, theories of reality. 
Um, but I never published anything on theology um, until recently. And all the, the work that I did in logic and philosophy of logic has come to bear on a view that I think is um, the right view of the incarnation. And I was fortunate to be able to put it together in this book uh, with the help of people at uh, Notre Dame and uh, other places where they gave really valuable feedback. So um, it's just sort of the culmination of a lot of things that I was working on. That's cool. Yeah. Before we jump into everything, I do want to just remind our listeners, if you're interested in the book, it's called The Contradictory Christ. It's it's with published with Oxford University Press in the Oxford Studies in Analytic Theology. I think there's some really uh, interesting works in this series. So you've got everything from uh, Ryan Moles has been on the show with us before his book, The End of the Timeless God, uh, Tim Paul's book in defense of extended conciliar Christology. And I guess I th- I imagine the first one is, I think, in the series, too. So he's been on the show before uh, defending just a conciliar account, as well as some other interesting stuff. So I think um, our, a lot of our listeners would probably be interested in in the book. And I, I personally thought it was fascinating. I'm not a logician by any stretch of the word. <laughs> but I do think that I have a fair grasp or understanding of philosophy. And what I have seen and observed, at least in my own corner of evangelicalism, is a resurgence of interest in all things philosophy. But one area that I haven't seen a resurgence in is this field of logic. Now, maybe it's just because we have all an assumed understanding of this classical version of logic, which we'll talk about at some point. But either way, I don't see a, a strong interest in thinking about just all the, the the entailment relations, all the stuff that's going on in logic. So I think this book is quite timely to give a little bit of a primer on what's going on in this area, this subdiscipline of philosophy, to help people think well about it. Because as is always the danger with any sort of retrieval or renaissance or, uh, I guess, resurgence movement, is this tendency to be really shallow and unnuanced. When in reality, there's so much nuance to be had, and I think we'll find that in this discussion of logic and the contradictory Christology. Brandon, did, you just read an article this morning on it, so I, maybe you'd jump off with, with some questions on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is something I'm really interested to learn more about um, because this is this is totally new uh, for me, this this view. So, um, And I did enjoy um, looking over your your article. And for, for the listeners, that was in the Journal of Analytic Theology in the, I believe, Volume 7, June of 2019, if you want to go look that up. Um, that was Dr. Bill's article on the contradictory Christ. But um, I get teased sometimes on, on social media about trying to start um, these podcast episodes with with definitions. But in a, in a topic like today's, it's especially uh, important that we be as precise as possible in our definitions. So, why don't we begin with with you defining logic for us, and then maybe from there we can move into what are some of the different um, versions, classical versions, standard versions of logic, and then we'll kind of just take the conversation from there. Yeah, I agree. That's a good, good starting place. Um, so let's take your first question. What is logic? For our purposes, the term logic in the relevant sense uh, is is really shorthand for logical consequence or logical entailment. Uh, logical consequence is one among many validity relations or entailment relations uh, on or in a given language. 
all of these validity or entailment relations are absence of counterexample relations. So one claim entails another claim, just when there's no relevant possibility in which the first claim is true and the second one's untrue. Um, and then that gets generalized to common arguments. A set of claims, often called premises, entails a target claim, often called a conclusion, just if there's no relevant possibility in which all the claims in the set of premises are true, but the target claim, the conclusion is untrue. So it's, it's a sort of standard uh, account of what um, entailment is. Now, what distinguishes logical entailment or logical validity from other entailment relations is the vocabulary cares about, so to speak, namely logical conjunction, logical negation, a universal quantifier, that is everything or for all X, um, and the derivative material conditional. A useful way to think about logical entailment is that its space of relevant possibilities, the space of candidate counterexamples, is the widest space of possibilities recognized by any entailment relation in our language. Logic, so understood, provides the very widest universe of possibilities, the so-called logical possibilities. And they are so-called because they're, they are the slate of possibilities recognized by logical consequence, logical validity. It has to look at all of them. Um, now, traditionally, uh, logical consequence is said to be universal and topic neutral. Uh, because it's involved in all of our true theories. It doesn't matter what topic you're talking about or which particular pocket of logical possibilities your theory counts as relevant to the topic. Whenever something is logically valid, an argument, say, whenever an argument is logically valid, it's thereby valid according to all validity relations involved in any true theory whatsoever. This is why careful examination of logical consequence is so important for any thinkers, any serious thinkers. If your theory of logic is wrong, this is going to affect every wannabe true theory you have. Sadly, many serious people who wish to think very deeply and construct true theories fail to think hard about logic. They simply take the mainstream so-called classical logic account of logical consequence, and then they never think twice. But there are many accounts of logic, uh, and responsible thinkers need to think very seriously about which account is right. So I'll answer the first question, what is logic there? Yeah, so the fact that there are multiple accounts of logic, that doesn't mean that there's just one, the classical account that you, that you mentioned. That's the only one that says there's true stuff out there. The other there's other accounts that say, yeah, there are true. This is truth. We can get obtain truth. It's just it's a different version of of I guess the logical consequences, right? Am I thinking about that somewhat right? I think so. Um, okay. So so um, I, I think you are. So, so again, think about you have a bunch of different true theories, right? Um, 
One's the truth about molecular biology. One's the truth about gravity. One's the truth about trees. One's the, one's the truth about the incarnation. One's the truth about divine reality, uh, and so on. So you have all these theories. Those theories are tied to particular languages. For example, the language of, you know, the true theory of molecular biology is not going to have talk about divine, you know, about God or about the incarnation. It's not even going to have talk about necessity. It's probably not going to have terms like true or um, things like this in the language because the language is tied specifically to that small pocket of reality in the way that, for example, the true theory of arithmetic is very, it's very limited. It has the logical vocabulary and or not, you know, and so on, and the quantifiers, but it just has names for numbers and addition and an identity relation. And that's it. It doesn't talk about necessity. It doesn't, you know, that's for other theories to talk about. Okay. So when you think of, um, uh, you know, serious um, pursuit of true theories, you're thinking of them as, as sort of precisely defined and each has their own language. Logical, e each one of those is going to have its own consequence relation or entailment relation, which is going to tell you if you have all these biological claims in the biological theory, it's going to tell you what else follows from that. Okay? Now, logic itself won't tell you anything except what follows from and or not. Um, it only sees that vocabulary. Everything else it just doesn't even recognize. Biology has the logical vocabulary, but also has the special predicates, whatever the biological you know, predicates are. And the, the consequence relation or entailment relation in the true theory of biology will, will be tied to some of those biological predicates but it fully must respect anything that's logically valid, okay? All right. Now, back to your question. That's all I mean when I say there are a lot of sort of entailment relations and theories have their own. It doesn't mean that they're, they're against logic or don't have logic. It just means they go beyond because logic only talks about a limited number of um, pieces of vocabulary. Now, um, Brandon asked... You know, I said that there are a lot of different accounts of this universal logical relation that's part of every true theory. And Brandon asked, um, what are some other accounts uh, aside from this? So for present purposes, we're using the term logic, as I just said, namely to pick out logical entailment or consequence, qua universal validity relation that's involved in all true theories, doesn't matter what the topic and it's tied only to this limited bit of vocabulary, conjunction, disjunction, negation, and so on. All right. Now, even on the focused usage of the term logic, um, there are many versions or candidate accounts of logic. Um, rather than go into a few recipes for how you can construct your own account, um, I'll just focus on two principal approaches, namely um, the so-called classical one that, that has been mentioned, and um, so-called subclassical accounts. Um, on both approaches, and this is very important, the vocabulary is the usual set of vocabulary uh, 
and or not. They all recognize the same pocket of logical vocabulary and the truth and falsity conditions for that vocabulary, for the logical vocabulary, is the same in both the classical and the family of subclassical ones. Okay, so the difference between the classical and the subclassical is only in the space of possibilities that it recognizes. I think this is where Jordan was uh, uh, getting to. So let me just give you a quick um, back of the napkin sketch of the classical and subclassical. Um, so the classical, this is the um, mainstream sort of account. So-called classical account of logical consequence, um, it's the one that everyone gets in their first course in logic. This was an account that was constructed as an account of the entailment behavior of logical vocabulary in true mathematical theories. But usually when it's taught to undergraduates, the account is presented as if it's actually the account governing logical vocabulary in all true theories whatsoever. Uh, and I must say on the side, in a very real sense, this is tremendously misleading advertising. Um, but it's the usual uh, run of first logic courses. On this classical account, we have standard truth and falsity conditions like, like uh, the following. And I'll just give one for um, logical negation. Um, a negation is true. Uh, true in a possibility or a model, if and only if the negatum, the thing negated, is false in the given possibility or model. Right? So I'll just say that again uh, without pausing. A negation is true in a possibility or model, if and only if the negatum is false there. A negation is false in a possibility or model, if and only if the negatum is true there. So basically it's exactly, you know, a negation is true if and only if the negatum is false, a negation is false if and only if the, the um, thing negated is true. So these conditions should be very familiar to anyone who's taken a first course in logic. But now the critical question, what is the space of possibilities, um, which are modeled, by the way, by precise mathematical models, uh, but that's beside the point. Um, what's the space of possibilities? Are there possibilities in which a negation is neither true nor false? A so-called gappy possibility. Well, the meaning of logical negation, given the standard truth and falsity conditions that we just reviewed, doesn't rule them out. It doesn't rule out gappy possibilities. All that those meanings demand is that if a sentence P is neither true nor false, then so too, its negation is neither true nor false. That's completely compatible with saying that negation is true if and only if the negatum is false, the negation is false if and only if the negatum is true. So if you are a sentence that's neither true nor false, well, so too is your negation. Um, but these gappy possibilities aren't ruled out by that meaning, um, by the standard truth and falsity conditions. So another question. Are there possibilities in which a negation is both true and false? A so-called glutty possibility. Uh, that is a glut of truth and falsity versus a gap of neither truth nor falsity. Um, so are there glutty possibilities? 
Well, again, this is not ruled out by the meaning of logical negation, given the standard truth and falsity conditions. The only thing that those conditions demand is that if a sentence P is both true and false in a particular possibility, so too is its negation. After all, the truth and falsity conditions for negation say that a negation is true if and only if the negatum is false, and it's and it's false if and only if the negatum is true. So if you've got a P that's both true and false, same with the negation. Okay? Um, so these possibilities aren't ruled out by the meaning of, of that is, the truth and falsity conditions of um, logical negation. Um, the question is, are they ruled out on the classical account? Well, anyone who's taken a first course knows the answer. The mainstream so-called classical account of logical consequence simply rules both gaps and gluts out. Is there a good reason to do so? Yes. That might surprise you that I said that. But yes, there is. There is in as much as the classical logical account is an account of how logical vocabulary behaves in our true mathematical theories. So as a limited account of how that vocabulary behaves in our true mathematical theories, those glutty and gappy possibilities are most definitely missing. Um, after all, true mathematical theories are without gaps and without gluts. At least, uh, it's my view. There are some people who, who argue otherwise. But um, And just a technical point, which 99.5% of everyone can ignore, my, the claim I just made um, assumes that the mathematical theories are prime theories. Okay, I mentioned that only to throw it away because one of your listeners <laughs> will happen to be the one person that knows what a prime theory is. All right. I myself completely agree that the right account of logical vocabulary uh, in true mathematical theories is per the classical logic story. But logical consequence governs all true theories, not just the true mathematical ones. So the key question is, do we have good reason to think that the classical logic account in its narrow space of logical possibilities is the true account for all theories, all true theories, including true theories about curious properties like truth and falsity, or true theories, so-called theologies, of divine reality? Are glutty or gampy possibilities involved in those aspects of reality that go beyond the narrow confines of mathematical reality? The subclassical accounts of logical consequence are accounts that allow for some of the possibilities that the mainstream account ignores or otherwise rules out. All subclassical accounts of, lo of logical consequence recognize all possibilities that the classical logical, logic account recognizes. It's just that they recognize more. Mm -hmm. In particular, some subclassical accounts go further by allowing gappy possibilities, but nothing else. I mean, the classical ones and gaps, nothing else. Some allow gluts, but not gaps. Some, like the one that I myself think is correct, um, often called FDE for first degree entailment, um, allows both gaps and gluts as logical possibilities. 
What's important to see is that none of the possibilities recognized by classical logic are rejected. Rather, extra classical logic possibilities are, are recognized. What this means is that if there's a classical counterexample to an argument, then that argument is thereby logically, logically invalid. However, the absence of a classical counterexample doesn't mean that the argument is logically valid. Um, the absence of classical counterexamples doesn't mean that the argument is logically uh, valid because there are more logical possibilities than are recognized by that space. You have to make sure there's no counterexample. And according to the subclassical view, you have to look beyond the, the narrow classical ones. Um, so that gives you some sense of, of uh, sort of, for our purposes, the main um, yeah. al alternative versions. That's helpful. I mean, I think even in, in my first read of your book, it was it was helpful to, to grasp some of these different concepts um, and understanding the, the distinctions between the two, because quite frankly, I just, I'm not familiar with subclassical logic. And I imagine uh, a good amount of our listeners are you know, hearing this for the first time, thinking, what is subclassical logic? You know, I think Mike DeVito texted me the other day and he was like, you know, I think people hear subclassical logic and they just run away because they think I have no idea what that means. He, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious when he's talking about your book, he goes, I'm a dang meathead. And it only took me one read to understand it. <laughs> um, and I think that's true. It, it's just, it's new material that a lot of us haven't been exposed to. So when I when I first start started reading your book and thinking about it, some of the questions that came to my mind were: It seems that the most of the Christian tradition has intuitively fallen back on a classical model of logic. If I say I want to affirm a subclassical version, does that become problematic for the Christian tradition at large, or is it just simply something that? It's a minor tweak, and we're just clarifying and making more sense of the claims we've been making all along. Right. Yeah, good question. Um, and that, that's, that's, I'm very pleased to hear that both you and uh, Mike found the, um, the, 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 the book accessible in that way because it was written to be, I try to assume no sort of technical background, so I'm glad. So you're really asking a couple questions. One is, are there theological reasons to want to re retain classical logic? And then um, is it a problem for non-classical logic approaches that that uh, the majority of the Christian tradition uh, seems to have functionally accepted the classical version? Right. So let me, let me just quickly answer those. Um, are there any theological reasons to want to retain classical logic? I don't know of any. Neither theology nor the church authority on theological matters has told us what the true theory of physics is or the true theory of biology or the true theory of algebraic groups or so on. Why should we expect either theology or the church qua authority on theological matters to tell us what the true theory of logical consequence is? That said, if there are theological reasons to accept the classical logic account, I very much want to know, but I, I know of none. I, I'm trying to think here, and I'm curious. It just came to my mind as you're talking about it. I don't think there are any creeds or, any, or anything like that. But I'm wondering, the Westminster Confession talks about good and necessary consequence. Uh, so it's talking about, I guess, 
the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. But I don't know if that's really giving an account of logic as it's just saying there are consequences of some sort. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm not that I'm a, an expert on it, but I, first off, don't think that they're saying, and by the way, this standard account, which was precisely formulated to model uh, the logical vocabulary and true mathematical theories, it's the one that constrains God and divine reality and so on. Like, this is this is your entailment relation. The true theology, whatever, ultimately, you know, it, it looks like um, like any other true theory is going to be governed by consequence relations and entailments. And you can't just sort of ignore that. And you have to you have to figure out, you know, what is the right account of all of all that? So, no, I, I, I think you're on to something there. But just to tie off the, the question. Is it a problem for non-classical approaches to theology that the majority of the Christian tradition has at least functionally accepted a classical version? Um, and I just want to give you two two comments on that. Um, I mean, I'm happy to talk further. But first, the majority of the early church presumably had a very bad theory of physics <laughs> and one of biology and one of chemistry and just about anything else. Um, should we infer that their account of physics, et cetera, is the one to which Christian thinkers are somehow, you know, rightly tied? Obviously not. And the case is no different with the true theory of logical consequence. Um, so that's the first comment. Second comment, um, though this is somewhat as an add-on, because I think the first comment is pretty important. The second comment is this. It's not obvious to me that that um, the majority of the, of the Christian church has, in fact, clung to the classical logic account. I know that working theologians, and now to list just a few who might work, you know, prominent analytic uh, theologians, um, people like Thomas McCall, Oliver Crisp, Andrew Torrance, Sarah Coakley, um, all of these people will probably say that they endorse classical logic. But I think that that's largely because that's what they were taught. And the demands on their work just hasn't given them the chance to seriously explore different accounts. Moreover, if we think of the Catholic Church, I'm Protestant, but we're uh, at a Catholic university. Um, if we think of the Catholic, uh, Catholic with a big C, of course, we think of the Catholic Church as heavily influenced by Aristotle via Aquinas. Well, even here, there's a fairly strong case to be made that Aristotle's account of logic was what some people call paraconsistent, which is a sort of uh, glut-allowing framework. Um, I forget who it was, but um, a couple people have written on Aristotle's um, syllogism and how it actually is, it, it doesn't affirm that arbitrary contradictions deliver everything, um, entail everything. Um, but even put that aside, that, you know, it's tricky history stuff. Um, put that aside and notice, though, what's not uncontroversial is that Aristotle himself thought that it was important to reflect on whether there can be glutty 
contradictory possibilities and dually gappy ones. Uh, that just means that the question remains open, even for those who hitch their theology to Aristotle. Um, so I, I, it's not obvious to me whether the claim that, you know, the majority of Christians actually subscribe to, to the classical account is correct. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I can't help but think of somebody like Martin Luther. and I, I'm not a Luther scholar, but from the stuff that I've heard of Luther, it seems that he would be somebody who would be probably in this subclassical bucket where he's wanting to affirm mm -hmm. that contradictions are true. And he'd have no problem with it, it seems. Yeah, you know what, uh, Jordan? I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I uh, What worries me about Luther is, uh, <laughs> not that I'm a scholar, but what worries me about Luther is that, one, I think you're right. He'd say, okay, it's contradictory. Who cares? The reason, though, and again, I'm not, uh, you know, I should, uh, maybe Richard Cross knows, uh, a colleague of mine who knows a lot about the history of theology, but um, he, uh, but Luther, he appears to be one who says, look, it doesn't matter because the true theory of God isn't constrained by logic. It can be as contradictory as you want. Logic, okay, whatever. But, and and that to me that's just giving up on the responsibility of of giving the truth as best that you can. Um, now, I'm not, by the way, just to be clear, I am not saying that's what Luther thought, yeah. but I worry that he wouldn't, you know, and that he, he wouldn't think that theology is constrained by logic. Um, and so he might look like one who wants to, go with the subclassical account of logic, but I think he's just illogical. And, no, Car and, and Bart, of course, you know, Carl Bart, um, uh, who I think was right that, you know, you, you, you get the truth of the incarnation first, um, and then you try to figure out other theological things. He was right about that, but all his discussion of, contradiction looks like he should be committed to it to a non-classical logic but the few bard scholars that i talked to um they're just like no of course he would never affirm a contradiction but it's yeah i, I so i don't get it yeah, but, <laughs> yeah it, but, it seems that uh, there's probably a little bit of a challenge just the fact that a lot of these theologians or these scholars just don't have expertise in logic so they don't have the conceptual categories to really make these fine-grained distinctions to say, yes, this person would think this about this. And the same thing with Luther. I wonder if you go back in time and you present Luther, hey, Luther, let me explain lo these logical accounts to you. There's part of me that thinks he'd be like, yeah, then I'm a subclassical man. But there's the other part that I think he's just kind of like, well, no, I like to keep God free from everything. And therefore, I just want to ignore it altogether when it comes to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I mean, I, I certainly understand the impulse to say that God is not constrained by uh, anything, but um, um, but I also think that the responsibility to give a true account of as 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 full and complete and uh, as you can um, demands that we that we yeah. constrain our theories by logic. And well, I know yeah. we want to we want to get to I guess applying this logical account to the incarnation. And I think your title's pretty provocative to most people. They'd probably look at this and say the contradictory Christ. 
does that mean he's denying the incarnation or denying something that the church has tried to hold together for 2000 plus years? But I don't think that's what you're doing. Uh, I think you're trying to affirm the, the truth of the incarnation and just say, look, we don't have to come up with all these logical gymnastics to explain how it is that the divine and the human can come together in the person of Christ. We can just say, yeah, it, it's legit contradictory and it's still true and move on. So I'll let you add, take away, change that how, how you'd like. No, I, I mean, what I'd like to do is end the podcast there. You put your finger on it all and uh, now you watch. I'll mess everything up. But um, So, right. So what what's contradictory Christology and um, why would anyone want to affirm it is basically your question. Um, uh, just before before answering, let me clarify a piece of logical terminology. Um, and Brandon, so the people who criticize you for doing that at the start, you can tell <laughs> that you also do it in the middle. <laughs> um, uh, let, let me define the term contradiction. Um, a contradiction is the logical conjunction. That is and. Uh, it's, it's a contradiction is the logical conjunction of a sentence and its logical negation. Uh, so contradictions explicitly expressed have the form, it is true that P and it is false that P, where P is any declarative sentence or proposition or claim, you know. Okay, so that's all I mean. Uh, when I talk about a contradiction, I mean a sentence of the form, it is true that P and it is false that P, where P is one and the same sentence. Okay, all right, now to your question. Um, well, contradictory Christology, as I've advanced it, is an account of Christ, according to which Christ is a contradictory being. That is, a being of whom some contradiction is true. Why think that Christ is a contradictory being? The answer, um, as I discuss at length in my book, is that the simplest explanation of the apparent contradiction of the Incarnation of Christ, the incarnate God, is that the appearance is reality. Vast numbers of non-Christian and Christian thinkers have recognized the apparent contradiction of Christ being fully divine and thereby having the essential limitlessness of God and being fully human and thereby having the essential limits that all humans have. The history of heresies is part of a huge quest to consistentize the church, to give a consistent account of Christ by getting around the apparent contradiction. Example, maybe Christ is two persons. Maybe Christ isn't really divine, but just human. Or not really human, but just divine. Or some hybrid human-divine nature or some such. You can go through each heresy and see them as not some evil or, you know, dumb sort of account or something. No, these these are people trying, they're staring at the apparent contradiction, trying to navigate around it in, in a way that they can make sense of. Um, contradictory Christology is the thesis that the apparent contradiction of Christ is veridical. Example, it's true that Christ is peccable. That is, Christ can sin, just as all humans are peccable. But it's false that Christ is peccable, cannot sin, since truly divine beings are impeccable. 
and so on. Why would anyone want to affirm contradictory Christology? In my book, I give seven virtues. Let me quickly mention four just for time, and I'm going to not mention them in much detail. So one virtue is simplicity. It gives a simple account of the appearance, and there's no obvious reason to think that the truth has to be more complicated. A second virtue, avoiding ad hoc meaning change. There's no need to fiddle with the standard meanings of divine or human or peccable or impeccable or the like. The only reason we'd be driven to such ad hoc maneuvers is by an unfounded account of logical consequence. Third virtue, metaphysical neutrality. Unlike a lot of attempts to respond to the contradiction of Christ, the contradictory account does not require staking the truth of Christ on some complicated metaphysical theory. At the very least, contradictory Christology is far less metaphysically demanding than the host of leading attempts to consistentize Christ. Virtue four, preserving the principal subject of Christology. What standard, at least Chalcedon-constrained uh, theology affirms is that Christ is fully divine and Christ is fully human. Christ. The principal subject here is Christ. What we're saying is that Christ is, for example, impeccable, can't sin, because Christ, Christ is divine, and peccable, because human. Christ can sin. <laughs> we're saying this of Christ, not something that isn't Christ. But the only way to say this, to keep the principal subject of our fundamental predications, Christ himself, is to do so by a contradiction. On my view, this is all to be expected, since it appears that the incarnation itself was achieved via contradiction, the union of the transcendent divinity and imminent humanity in one person, Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Um, so I would, I would that that gives you a sense of what contradictory Christology as I've developed it is, and um, four virtues of it. So just to return to the groundwork that you laid earlier on the different versions of logic, I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you here. So this account of Christology that you're laying forward would it be classified as a a glut? Is that correct? It's a glutty account. Good. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, all right. So I feel like I've got a decent enough handle on it. Okay. So what, what do you think are, I know we don't have time I, in your paper that I read uh, this morning, you did uh, answer a number of objections that had been brought forward against your view. Uh, we probably don't have time to go over all of them, but what are some of the objections that you've come across? I know because one of the things that you addressed in the paper that kind of popped into my head before you even got to it was like, well, you know, why wouldn't we just like apply this to like something like the paradox of the stone? You know, can God create a stone so heavy that he can't lift it? Of course, you answer that in your paper. Maybe you can unpack that for us as one of the um, uh, replies to one of the objections. But just maybe pick two or three objections and, and give us your uh, reply to those. 
Okay, I, I uh, let me just give you three that are common and are probably worth saying, and they, they won't take much. Uh, but but before I get to those, let me just mention the thing about the stone um, for your listeners. Um, yeah, in the book, I say that Christ is the unique source of contradiction. Um, and um, one might say, as Brandon said, why not also then say that the typical omni problems like is there a stone too heavy for God to lift and so on? Um, uh, why not say that that's contradictory as well, um, which has nothing special to do with the incarnation and so on? Um, in no way do I think that that's not an option. It's just that I don't see it as obvious in the way that I think the incarnation is. It's not. Um, but but look, you're not the first to push and just say, well, if you say it about the incarnation, you should say it about the stone problem. I, I, I'm waiting for somebody to convince me that that's right. I, in no way do I think that it's wrong. I'm just focusing on the incarnation. And um, well, and now I'm writing a follow up book on the Trinity. But um, so, Brandon, you're thinking, well, uh, it's just a question of whether that's ultimately the right thing to say about that problem. It's not obvious to me. Um, and, and not because I see really bad consequences to doing that. It's just not obvious. Uh, okay. Um, so, so as you said, there are a number of contradictions. Um, let me just quickly give you a few uh, contradictions, uh, objections. So one objection is that contradictions are bad. And to endorse contradictory Christology is to put something bad at the very crux of Christian theology. I get this a lot, and so I think it's held, it's felt by a lot of people. If the claim is that contradictions are rare in reality, I agree. But rarity of something is hardly a mark of something bad. Witness the, the incarnation itself. Another objection um, is a contradictory Christology, regardless of its other virtues, is at best a last resort option. And so we should exhaust all consistent options before accepting contradictory Christology. My reply to this is simply to ask for an argument. Why? If, as I think, for independent reasons, our best account of logic allows for gluts, it doesn't demand them, but allows for them, then why not accept that the very long-standing appearance of contradiction in the incarnation is veridical? The space of logical possibilities aren't ordered in terms of good ones to bad ones. They're just out there. So again, I don't think that that objection goes very far. And let me, let me just mention one other, uh, which might be of direct interest to some of your listeners. Another objection is that by contradictory, uh, is that contradictory Christology makes apologetics even harder as we now have to convince the objector to recognize the possibility of glutty possibilities and then carry on with defending the rationality of accepting that such possibilities are the actual truth in the case of the incarnation. Apologists will win few debates along these lines. My reply is that no serious Christian thinker should worry even two seconds over winning a debate. Moreover, the job of apologetics is not to convince anyone of anything. Leave the convincing to God. The job of apologists is simply to defend against the charge of incoherence when, and please note very well, 
when the charge comes from someone who's actually pursuing the truth. It's easy to spout charges of incoherence or untruth at any theory you please. But so what? The only charges that need to be taken seriously are ones that come from a genuine pursuer of truth. And if such a one points out, as many have and many continue to do so, that the crucial Christian doctrine of the Incarnation is contradictory, the apologist can, and I believe should, agree. For that's the truth. That's the reality that God chose. If the objector who sincerely is trying to understand asks after how that can possibly be true, well, there are many things to say depending on what their specific questions are. My book says at least some of them, I hope. So again, the objection from apologetics is not a fruitful one, and in my view rests on a very bad perspective on the job of fruitful apologetics. There are many other objections, um, but I'll leave things there. No, that's helpful. Uh, One question that just came to my mind as I'm listening to you describe this and explain this is, I wonder if your theory might be more attractive to those who are classical theists than it would be to those who want to deny classical theism. Because uh, in my mind, I'm just thinking, if we strip away all of the classical attributes of you know, impassibility, immutability, those things, the, the need, the pressing need to say that Jesus is both uh, impassable and impassable kind of goes away. It, they just say, well, he's passable in both ways. So there's, it, there's not really a problem uh, on the account. So I wonder if the, your account is far more attractive to classical theists. Would you think that's probably the case? I'm not sure whether it's probably the case, but um, it's, it's, I I find it very plausible to think that that's, that that might be so. Um, But I will say this. um, I sure hope that those who, you know, we talk about the classical theism. I mean, look, As far as I'm concerned, any of the sort of rejection of classical theism, um, uh, now some of it is based on inferences drawn from reading scripture. That is its own thing. I've never been convinced that those inferences are well-founded. But um, take, though, the people who are convinced from sort of logical problems. They can't make sense of God or the incarnation uh, in particular. or the, And so they start giving up um, um, properties that they think uh, God has. I don't know of anyone who does that and doesn't think that they are weakening the conception of uh, divine reality and of God. Um, I think that they think, well, of course, God's still the greatest and everything, but um otherwise we can't make sense of things ultimately i believe that they're being driven by um for example a conception of logical coherence that that they've never examined um so if they first examine um you know accounts of logical consequence and they have a good argument for for theirs uh, over, for example, a subclassical one, then then I really want to hear it. But I think that people who give up 
so-called classical theism. I mean, I just I don't I don't think of that as a unique position. I actually think of it as a weakening of of the conception of God, um, and doing so in response to apparent contradiction. Otherwise, that's helpful. I know we're running out of time. I got a lot of questions I'd love to ask you. I think this is fascinating. Uh, two that, that come to mind uh, that I. It could be a short answer. That's fine. I'm wondering, why would you say take my view over somebody like Tim Paul's view, who I guess he's, I'm trying to remember, but he, I think he uses the qua stuff, you know, God, Jesus as divine uh, has this property. Jesus as uh, human has this property. So that's one question. And then the other question, it's probably pretty quick. Your colleague, you mentioned Richard Cross. I'm curious, has he read it? Has he had any thoughts? I'd be fascinated to hear what he had to say. Um, let me answer the second one first and, and then uh, answer the one about Tim Paul's work. Um, so Richard Cross was actually active in the, in my writing of this book. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he was extraordinarily encouraging. He thought that it was uh, fascinating. Um, and Without his encouragement, I doubt that I would have been motivated to uh, really get the book done. Um, wow. Yeah, so he was really encouraging. Um, and, you know, um, I think that at some point he may sort of look to see whether there's precedent uh, in the history of theology. But, yeah, he was very and remains very encouraging. He's He's one of, just an extraordinary person who knows theology and is a great philosopher. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky to have him as a colleague. Okay, why, so as you said, somebody might be wondering, why not go with um, Tim Paul's uh, model? Why? Uh, and as you nicely put it, that though Dr. Paul will not um, be a fan of what you said, uh, I think it's hard not to see what he's doing as just a qua approach that he criticizes, but but he he he's right that the letter of what he's doing is not. But um, but you're not the first, and you certainly won't be the last to to, to sort of read him that way. Okay, but why not? Why not a model like uh, Tim Paul's? Um, his project is entirely defensive, um, and he's explicit on that. Um, his aim is driven by his marriage to the mainstream classical logic account. And for all that I can tell, that's not a marriage that the Catholic Church demands of him. Uh, but that's where he starts. Um, what's he defending against? Well, the charge of contradiction. Um, uh, the, that is, Christ being fully divine and fully human um, is contradictory. Um, all the usual entailments of passability and impassibility hold. Um, so how, what is his proposal? Well, your listeners can look at uh, his books for in-depth details, but the basic picture is just this. Again, the charge is that in virtue of being fully divine and, vo- and fully human, Christ is thereby impeccable, impeccable. That is, Christ is unable to sin and able to sin. Contradiction. So the objection says you should reject all contradictions, hence reject Christian theology. Um, Does Tim Paul uh, explain how it is that Christ is peccable and impeccable? That is, how it is that Christ is able to sin and unable to sin? 
The answer is a resounding no. Uh, instead, he introduces new terminology, call them star peckable and star impeccable. And um, see his work, which is uh, very accessible um, for uh, details, but something star peckable, if and only if, it has a concrete nature that's able to sin. And it's star impeccable if it has a concrete nature that's unable to sin. Now, it remains unclear what exactly these concrete natures are and what it is to have them, but set all that aside. The central premise is that whatever they are, these concrete natures that Christ has, whatever it is to have them, are not identical to Christ. Hence, Dr. Paul is in no way affirming that Christ himself, the principal subject, is both peccable and impeccable, but rather just star peccable and star impeccable. Um, so his account is clear and consistent. The trouble is, from my perspective, it just agrees with the very objection against which it's trying to defend, namely that Christ is peccable and impeccable. Uh, that, oh, sorry, that he agrees that there's no way Christ is both peccable and impeccable. Um, he just says, but you can change language and say something that sounds like that. Um, so while I think that Tim Paul, who, by the way, is one of my favorite analytic theologians to read, and on a personal note, a delightful person, has, uh, while he's offered a way to defend against the charge of Christ's contradictions by changing meanings and maybe also changing the subject, I see it as a vastly more complicated account than the contradictory one. Uh, and all of it rests, so far as I can tell, on an unfounded commitment to the mainstream account of logic. So, uh, thanks for that, Doctor Bill. And this has been a um, stimulating conversation. I've I've really enjoyed it. It's made me want to um, try to learn a bit more about this. So, with that in mind, um, do you have any recommended resources for our listeners, whether that be on um, philosophy of logic in general, or maybe more specific um, to contradictory theology? And this would be a good time if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about this book on the Trinity that you're working on. I know there's probably specifics you can't get into, but um, if you want to share anything about that, that would be great. Okay. Yeah. Very quickly. There, there's a lot of different things you could read on the, on, um, on contradictory theology uh, for background. I would read Richard Cross's uh, essay incarnation in the handbook of philosophical theology edited by uh, Flint and Ray. Um, uh, that sort of sets out what some people call the fundamental problem of the incarnation. Um, um, it doesn't talk about contradictory theology, but it gives a background. Um, for contradictory theology, um, you know, I think the best place to look is um, is in my book, The Contradictory Christ. And I hope that I've written that in a way that people find very accessible. I tried to. Um on logic, uh, sort of subclassical, non-classical logic, um, I did a book with um, Shay Logan called Logic: The Basics, and it's an entry-level text. Uh, and and you can look through that. That too was written for people who've never done any logic or anything, and um, that goes through the details of some of these subclassical logics. Um, and then you can look to the recommended readings there for further. Um, um, I should, before saying something about the Trinity, um, the philosophy of logic um, is different from logic itself. Um, you know, logic is just whatever logical consequence winds up being. The philosophy of logic is sort of 
what is that account? There are a lot of issues that arise. And um, I think a book, there's a book by um, Konitz, C-O-H-N-I-T-Z, and um, uh, Estrada Gonzalez, and it's called An Introduction to the Philosophy of Logic, and that's by Cambridge. Um, And I think that would be worthwhile to get your feet wet in those issues. On the Trinity book, this is very much a follow-up. So I take it that, um, you know, according to Christian theology, um, you know, we have the written revelation and you have the the, uh, special revelation in the incarnation of God. Um, And I agree with those who say that, you know, you want to get... um, you want to think about the incarnation first. So I've, I've tried to do that and then think about the problems of the Trinity and, and other issues. Not that those are the only two issues, but um, um, in my book, uh, it's called Divine Contradiction. Um, and this is uh, takes off from where the contradictory Christ ended. Um, I take it as a premise that Christ is contradictory. And the question is, how, if at all, does the contradiction of Christ affect our understanding of the Trinity and the apparent contradictions there? Um, does it illuminate that at all? And um, I try to give an account that um, is sort of unified with this account. And uh, yeah, I mean, to say much more, we need much more time than we have, and um, uh, and I think we've held your listeners far too long. <laughs> That's all right. I think it's been fascinating, delightful conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I encourage everybody who's interested in it, pick up a copy of the book. Uh, it's accessible, like we've mentioned. It's short, so you're not going to be reading 600 pages trying to understand all the stuff. So I think it's a it's a good resource to go to. And I'm looking forward to uh, the forthcoming volume as well, which we will make sure to let everybody know uh, when that releases in the future. Uh, So Dr. Veal, thank you a ton for talking with us. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I I encourage everybody as well, just to follow along with your work. I know you've got your website uh, over at Notre Dame where you've got your CV and everything so they can uh, stay in touch as check and see how things are going, progressing on those things. Um, cause I think it's, it's pretty fascinating and it's an area that I think a lot of us who are interested in the theological side, just don't have a lot of resources and a lot of conversation partners to help us think through these things. So I think this is really unique and helpful. That, that said, you got anything to close with? Uh, I, I just want to say that, um, I'm, I'm delighted that, that, uh, you're interested and, uh, you know, I really, I, I, I want to know if I'm if I'm wrong and if it's if uh, you know this is the wrong direction. I want somebody to explain why, and then we can move on to a better direction. Um, and so I'm grateful to both of you. I think what you do with your podcast is really just remarkable. And um, uh, so so thank you. I'm 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 happy to have done it with you, and I look forward to future conversation. Yeah, Thank that you. sounds awesome. Yeah, thanks, Sultan. And everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Is your wallet a little lighter than usual after the holiday season? Consider it money well spent because you deserve to live your best life and the Chime Checking Account wants to help you live yours to the fullest. A little extra money goes a long way, which is why the Chime Checking Account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and access to over 60,000 easy-to-find and fee-free ATMs. You even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go, including sending and receiving money fee-free with friends that aren't even on Chime. Sign up for Chime today for you and your wallet. Get started at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply.